This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a broadcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Professor Nenke Bohr, the author of The Brainy South, Displacement and Sentiment in the Indian Ocean World published by Duke University Press in 2023. Nekobor is a lecturer in world literatures uh, in English at the University of Sydney. In the Brainy South, uh, Bohr examines the legal and literary narratives of enslaved, indentured, and imprisoned individuals crossing the Indian Ocean to analyze the formation of racialized identities in the imperial world. Drawing on court records, uh, ledgers, pamphlets, uh, census reports, newsletters, folk songs, memoirs, uh, among others, and South African and South Asian works of fiction and autobiography, Bohr theorizes the role of sentiment and the depiction of emotions to the construction of identities of displaced peoples across the Indian Ocean. From the Dutch East India Company rule in the 17th and 18th centuries to early apartheid South Africa, Bohr shows how colonial powers and settler states mediated and manipulated subaltern expressions of emotion as a way to silence racialized subjects and portray them as intellect, uh, inter- inarticulately suffering. In this way, sentiment operated in favor of the powerful rather than as an oppositional weapon of the subaltern. By tracing the entwinement of displacement, race, and sentiment, Bohr frames the Indian Ocean as a site of subjugation within a long history of transnational connection and exploitation. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you, and thank you so much for uh, having me on here. It's a great honor. It's ours. We would like first to learn about yourself. You can say a few words about yourself. Uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you had any mentors you would like to mention. 
Oh, great. Thank you. Um, so I, I was born in South Africa, but I actually I grew up mostly in Namibia and uh, Swaziland, uh, now Eswatini. Um, and uh, I guess I always tell my students I have a really boring origin story. I sort of heard about the discipline of, of comparative literature in high school. And uh, I decided that was what I wanted to do, and and then I went I went to college and 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 studied comparative literature, and uh, um, I had sort of the the privilege of working with Simon Gikandi there. Um, this was uh, at Princeton, uh, and then I went to graduate school and continued to do comparative literature. So I didn't really change my change my mind very much. Um, so in graduate school, uh, I work with Mark Saunders, who uh, also works on South African literature, um, and he works on law and literature. So that was quite influential on my work. And then, of course, um, Isabel Hoffmeyer, she was also there. This was at, uh, at NYU. Um, and so I met her there. And, you know, that was really sort of she's been the most amazing mentor. I have to say Isabel is very generous. Um, and, uh, just in terms of sort of Indian ocean studies, um, I've also sort of met with and worked with Gaurav Desai, Pallavi Rastogi and then Meg Samuelson. Um, and they've also just been, been sort of great mentors. So I think, yeah, I've just been really lucky, uh, in terms of my mentors. That's quite the illness you have there. <laughs> we had some of these <laughs> on the podcast uh so if listeners are interested just look look up their names uh, on your books network yeah that's true i was i was just listening to uh isabel's uh podcast and it was great yeah it's great um i would like to know more uh in terms of what drew you to the indian ocean world as a framework for uh, reading all of these texts um yeah so i uh uh, yeah, um, I kind of got interested in, so in, in, in college, I sort of did the more traditional comparative literature route of, like I learned German and French and sort of was working uh, on those kind of languages. Um, but then after college, I spent a year in India. I was, I was just working for, uh, for an NGO there for a year and uh, started learning some Hindi just a little bit and really wanted to sort of expand on that and wanted to do comparative, uh, comparative literature between um, India and South Africa. Um, but then, you know, when I started sort of refining my project, uh, I just came across this field of Indian Ocean Studies and was really drawn to sort of the sort of the more historical aspects of links between uh, India and South Africa. Uh, so, you know, that kind of got me into the, the field of Indian Ocean Studies. I see. Uh, can you say more about the title, The Brainy South? Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, I was sort of, you know, I work in Indian Ocean Studies and Ocean Studies more broadly, and I also teach classes in Indian in, in Ocean Studies more broadly. And also I've been sort of drawn to, to new work in Global South Studies, um, so work by um, people like Anne Garland Mahler and Magali Armias Tissera. Uh, on uh, like global South studies in literature specifically. And uh, so I was asked to sort of write uh, an art 
article about um, like how ocean studies fits into uh, global south studies. You know what the two fields can can uh, can offer each other. And so you know, I sort of thinking about this, I came up with this concept of the briny south, which is the intersection of these two fields of study. Um, so it combines sort of the uh, interest in um, like deep historical study and uh, attention to individuals moving across oceans uh, from ocean studies with the sort of um, interest in specifically looking at subaltern individuals um, that, uh, that, you know, uh, Global South Studies is, is very interested in. And it's sort of Global South Studies allows us to move beyond some of the post-colonial studies frameworks and think about the world sort of more globally and also about contemporary sort of uh, uh, neo-colonial kind of uh, 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 interactions. And so, yeah, I just sort of coined this term for for that intersection and the kind of work that people are doing at that intersection of these two fields. That was helpful. Uh, why did you focus on displacement and sentiment, among other themes? Yeah, so uh, sentiment became sort of a key uh, key term quite early on. Um, when I talk about sentiment here, I know there's like sort of a long history of, you know, talking about sentiments and what the term means at different moments in history. Um, I'm using it quite simply to sort of distinguish sort of actual emotions felt by individuals, which uh, I argue that especially with sort of these historical um, subjects I study, we, we have no access to. Um, to distinguish those emotions from the like the way that their emotions were depicted in writing. Um, so sentiments for me is just sort of the artful uh, literary depiction of emotions. And uh, so that became quite important to me because I was looking at these uh, sort of different texts, um, uh, specifically when I was looking at the sort of early Dutch court records. And I was sort of amazed by the, the fact that these uh, enslaved individuals were sort of expressing, were depicted in these records, like their supposed exact words um, expressing their, their emotions um, were recorded in these these. Um, court records. And that sort of tied in with some of the the work I was doing in later chapters too. Um, So that that focus on sentiment and how the way that subaltern emotions were depicted both in court records, in sort of uh, legal writing, in formal writing, and then later in autobiography um, and fiction, that sort of became sort of a central question to me. Um, displacement was sort of uh, just a uh, sort of default uh, factor of the kind of groups that I was studying. I was really interested in people in motion, um, and so and the the individuals in my in my book were all sort of like forced or placed into put into motion by empire, and so the fact that they were displaced was sort of one of the the connecting themes between these three groups. Um, So enslaved persons, indentured persons, and then war prisoners. So by focusing on these uh, categories of displacement, what do you think uh, scholars of the Indian Ocean can learn? I'm so sorry, can you repeat that? Yeah, by by focusing on these three categories that you've mentioned of enslaved, indentured, and interned, 
uh, what kind of scholars of the Indian Ocean learn in terms of thinking about mobility and immobility within imperial frameworks? Um, yeah, uh, thanks for that question. Sorry, I couldn't hear it first. Um, the uh, uh, what does this add to sort of Indian Ocean Studies more broadly? I think uh, Indian studies, Ocean Studies has uh, is it's re- initially started as sort of a historical um, framework, right? And uh, so it was often it often focused on individuals in motion, but I think a lot of the early work were on terms of merchants and uh, other individuals like crossing the ocean sort of uh, out of their own free will. Um, so I think oh. Part of what this sort of adds to it is looking at uh, unfree migration, right? Because it's harder to write about these subjects because they uh, most frequently did not leave any of their own sort of autobiographical writing. Um, so we're reliant on these imperial archives. Um, so for for me, that was, you know, one of the things that that drew me to these uh, these subjects was the fact that. Yeah, the information almost like it was a challenge. There was so little information um, available. Um, so yeah, right. Um, and thinking about these categories, we often think about uh, the famous work Candace Abalter speak. So how did you tackle the issue of uncovering or voicing um, these individuals and in, in the and the text that you read and analyzed? Uh, yeah, I think actually originally my subtitle was going to be uh, Silence and Speech in the Indian Ocean World. Um, uh, but uh, so that was one of the titles I was I was sort of playing with. Um, and that's because, yeah, so this idea of of how individuals are portrayed as speaking um, and in which ways they are silenced is sort of one of the key questions that run throughout the texts. Um, so I actually I mentioned in the book that I, I take um, Spivak's question and I sort of alter it a bit to ask, like, can the subaltern be depicted as speaking? Because um, the answer is different, um, at least initially in these sort of early Dutch court records, as I mentioned, uh, they the enslaved are depicted as speaking and there is sort of no no issue with them um, being able to speak in court and like have their supposed direct speech recorded. Um, And then what changes uh, later in the uh, 19th century, once the British takeover, uh, the court records still exist, but it's interesting how the enslaved are uh, increasingly sort of paraphrased, right? Um, They're not depicted as speaking directly in the same way. And that that sort of echoes what happens in abolitionist discourse. And so that that sort of question of, of like not whether the subaltern can speak, because um, I think, you know, Spivak has sort of (laughs) answered that quite definitively for us, but whether uh, in legal, literary, uh, fictional imaginations, they are imagined as speaking or depicted as speaking, um, you know, seems to me to open up sort of different, a different line of inquiry. That's useful to think with. Thank you. Let's now turn to the book and its chapters. Uh, the book consists of five chapters with an introduction and a coda at the end. Uh, as, at first glance, uh, I see a periodization from the mid 17th century till the end of the 19th century. Um, it might be obvious why you pick this periodization, but can you elaborate on that more? 
Yeah, so I, uh, you know, it, it sort of spans the, the period of, um, it begins with uh, sort of the European arrival um, at the, the Dutch Cape of Good Hope um, and then ends in 1960. So, you know, shortly after um, the imposition of apartheid uh, legislation in South Africa. Um, and I guess I'm just lucky as a literary scholar to be able to cover this sort of vast period of time. I think, you know, if, as a historian, one would probably be expected to be slightly more focused in your work. But I was really trying to tell sort of a long-term story about displacement uh, sentiment and law in the uh, in this sort of exchanges between um, so, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and South Africa. So for me, it was important to sort of cover, you know, all these different kinds of uh, imperial and then like post-imperial but still racialized rule um, that starts um, in the 1950s in South Africa. Uh, while going through this long durée, did you feel any tension between historical studies and literary studies and thinking about time? Uh, in general, uh, I think yes. I think a lot of people in um, literary studies, uh, I often get asked why so much of my book is talking about, you know, what they think of as historical sources. Um, but I actually think that the, the sort of tension was really productive for me because, you know, it really forced me to think about, you know, there are historians writing about these, these texts and these individuals and they're doing like they've, they've produced really great works. So the question for me is what can a literary scholar do with these records that, you know, a, a historian might not Thing to do, right? So really bringing those skills of close reading and literary analysis to bear on, on texts which, you know, they contain information, but they can also be close read to reveal sort of different things. Um, in terms of, uh, I think you said like specifically in terms of time and, you know, how uh, the, the fact that this is such a, a sort of long period of time to talk, talk about, I think I, I felt a lot of pressure to really um, you know, study up on the periods that I was working on, the different sort of periods. So, you know, I had my like, you know, year of becoming an 18th centuryist, which realized it's not enough time to become a proper 18th centuryist or or a proper uh, sort of 19th centuryist in another year. But uh, um, I felt like I really had to try and immerse myself as much as possible in these periods, so that the the claims that I make could be both true, could could hold up to historians of that that period and literary scholars of that period um, while still being sort of, um, a, you know, f- focused on the present as well and sort of like the, looking back at the past from the present moment. Uh, right. So in the, in the first chapter, representing speech and bondage in, uh, in the court record of the Dutch Cabo de uh, Hoodhoop, you would say in Dutch, uh, is that is that correct? Yes, Cabo de Goede Whip. I'm trying to remember my time at Leiden, <laughs> and I've learned some of <laughs> just uh, all the yeah. way through. <laughs> yes. uh, from uh, 1652 to 1795. Um, what are the analytical tools that you draw on to think about uh, representation and specifically representation of speech uh, in this text? Usually, um, when we think about representation of speech, uh, you wouldn't really uh, apply these methods, I would say, 
usually by historians, they wouldn't apply these methods in thinking about legal records. Um, so what do you think the, the utility of, of your experience in, in, in this chapter uh, could be for scholars thinking about uh, court records in the Indian Ocean? Yeah, I think that's really sort of where the uh, sort of literary training helped as well, right? Because these are these are really fascinating records, and one can you know you can really you can read them, and historians have read them uh, so much for like information about how individuals lived back then, um, like uh, sort of demographic information. Just you can just read them like they're just so interesting by themselves. But then the kind of analysis that I did was. Yeah, so sort of asking a very literary question, which is like, why is speech at certain moments like represented in quotation marks almost, right? You know, as direct quoted direct speech um, rather than as paraphrasing, right? Like why would lawmakers make that specific choice um, in writing these um, writing these these texts? Because, you know, we know from studies of, you know, uh, uh, the way people like even it, it's never like an actual accurate depiction of speech, right? It's always a imagination or a representation of that speech. Um, so, you know, why, why is that how they cho- choose to represent it? And like, so the entire chapter sort of emerges from what, yeah, what I think is a very sort of like literary, like close reading kind of question, like why, like why speech, uh, not paraphrased here. Why is it like um, quoted directly? And that you know, like, so I can use uh, sort of reading all of these. You know, I'm I'm sort of reading the the, the sort of uh, the 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 court records um, in a way that allow me allows me to to look for sort of literary features, right, um, rather than just uh, facts or information. And and someone can think of also a pal in the in the Atlantic world for the Inquisition records, and the scholars of the Atlantic have also tried to think about I guess representation uh, in those records as well as um, you might think about other sources that one can uh, one can study in the Indian Ocean um, to think about representation of speech. That's really interesting. Um, and then we go to the second chapter, which. Uh, almost speak back to the first chapter, which is silencing the enslaved. Here we are thinking about the act of silencing uh, rather than uh, just representation of speech and the aesthetics of uh, abolitionism in the British Cape colony between 1795 to 1834. Um, and thinking about silencing, we think about an active process here of censorship um, rather than representing and and quoting maybe uh, the subaltern. Uh, how do you how do you define silencing, uh, and how do you think about um, this active process of reconfiguring uh, the enslaved uh, and legal records? Um, yeah, so I think yeah, the two first two chapters really, as you say, they sort of like they make sense when when read next to each other because the almost the weirdness or the interestingness of those earlier Dutch records where you have these frequent sort of direct quotations um, really only becomes clear when you look at these later uh, sort of 19th century records where you know you you still have um, so you know one of the sort of 
interesting features about the cape was that in these courts, uh, you could have the enslaved and free are tried by the, the same courts and they can sort of, they can act as witnesses, um, uh, the accused, um, the accusers. Um, and that's that's very unusual in British colonies more broadly, where you tend to have separate slave courts. And so these kind of records um, that I'm looking at, they just don't exist in the same way for uh, much of the other sort of British um, British colonies. But because at the Cape, the British just sort of took over um, the the Dutch legal system, um, they they continued these courts. So you have these great court records. You have pages and pages and pages of, of sort of like transcripts from uh, sort of sentences um, uh, and, you know, uh, and you can really notice the difference in the way that these uh, direct like exclamations, these quotations by the enslaved, you just don't find them anymore. They're often just sort of paraphrased. Um, so it's sort of, again, it's one of those, it's a small observation to note that you just, you have have fewer like representations of, of direct quotations, but it, it led me to ask this bigger question of how how were the enslaved represented as speaking in the, the the Cape more broadly, and that led me to you know some of the abolitionist writing from the Cape, and uh, Thomas Pringle is the most well known abolitionist, and just sort of close reading some of his texts, a lot of which you know talks a lot about the enslaved and is trying to you know uh, definitely raise uh, sympathy and awareness of the enslaved, but uh, so often you know they are just described right, they're described as crying, they're described as suffering, but they're not, you don't hear here in quotation marks, because I realize, you know, this is all just represented speech, but you don't hear them in the same way. Um, so there is that sort of similarity in the way that the court records function in which the abolitionist uh, uh, sort of writing functions. And then there's this, you know, sort of pretty uh, interesting but horrific document by a slaveholder um, also from the Cape, and you, you notice sort of the same trend there. So there's this this overlap in which, in the way that both the abolitionist and the pro-slavery activists are writing about the enslaved, and so that I guess sort of just led me led me to ask broader questions about sort of representation of the enslaved and uh, what I call sort of the aesthetics. Um, of slavery, thinking about you know some of the artwork that emerges uh, from the the nineteenth century, um, some of the sort of more well known Atlantic sort of abolitionist works, um, and so I you know I just you sort of conclude by reflecting more broadly upon how how the enslaved are represented in these texts. That's really useful for me because I'm working now with uh, uh, basically quoted enslaved individuals, however, their names are erased and uh, the speech and representation, as well as silencing some of their uh, uh, intended meanings uh, are really quite obvious in the text. And uh, it's it's good to see uh, a parallel elsewhere to think about. Um, so we move from speech and representation and silencing to uh, to the sentimental in, in, the, in the last three chapters of the book. Uh, in chapter three, uh, between quotations, grievances, more sentimental than material, representing indentured labor in Natal between 1860 to 1915. And chapter four, a sentimental education in Boer War imprisonment camps in South Asia between 1899 to 1902. 
and chapter 5, Sentiment and the Law in Early South African Indian Writing between 1893 to 1960. So in these three chapters, we move to different sets of sources, different sets of questions, uh, and thinking about the sentimental uh, in these different uh, histories and texts. Uh, would you would you see as as common running themes in these chapters and thinking about the sentimental, and what sort of uh, challenges you face in reading uh, these different sources comparing to the previous two uh, legal sources? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, so uh, chapter three is kind of, yeah, sort of bridging, sort of moving from the legal sources to uh, more autobiographical sources, which is chapter four and chapter five. Um, so in chapter chapter three, I sort of, I mean, I think the, the overarching question, you know, that runs throughout is quite simple, like who can speak and how, right? Um, and so I move uh, as, uh, you know, sort of historically uh, after the end of, of slavery, uh, uh, the British Empire and other empires turned to indenture as a source of source of labor. Um, and so I kind of I start by comparing the way that abolitionists could write about the enslaved. Um, specifically Pringle um, writing about the enslaved at the Cape to how um, Gandhi, who, you know, as, as everyone on this podcast knows, spent a lot of time in South Africa, um, how he can write about indentured laborers, right? And uh, one of the things that, you know, like that's where the quotation comes from, um, he he's uh, accused uh, that there, the, the grievances that he raises about uh, British Indians in South Africa are more sentimental than material, um, by which they mean sort of more imagined than uh, real or experienced. Um, and so he, when he has, he's writing about these, uh, the, the experience of British Indians in, in South Africa, he really has to stress sort of the, the material aspects of their oppression and their suffering rather than um, sort of what they call sentimental or like feelings, language of feelings, right? Um, so when he talks about the insults that are lobbied against um, Indians in South Africa, he has to show how each insult translates into like actual physical injury, whether that is damage to a shop or like damage to someone's uh, like body. Um, so he really has to sort of physicalize the way that he talks about um, that experience. And that leads to the way that he also talks about indentured laborers, which is quite different than the way that uh, abolitionists can talk about the enslaved um, sort of what, 70 years earlier or so, um, there's been this sort of 
a shift in how how the the suffering has to be portrayed and so he you know he has this very intricate balance where he talks about you know both the um, the the actual physical suffering of this this indentured laborer that he's he's representing in court, um, but then he he does shift constantly between sort of language of emotions and sentiments and like physical grievances, but he has to be so careful in the way that he frames that. Um, so then I, I, I cross-referenced that with some court other court cases of indentured laborers. So that's sort of you know the last bit of time I spent in the court records and sort of see a similar thing where they these these records really focus on um, like physical grievances, like physical um, uh, suffering rather than emotions, right? Like that kind of like language of emotions has to be has to be sort of strategically erased for their complaints complaints to be legible. Um, so yeah, like that was, you know, that again, having these two chapters to compare with each other is quite useful because you can see that shift. Um, then the last two chapters, uh, as I say, sort of mo- move more into autobiography and eventually fiction. Uh, so the chapter on South African Boer war prisoners, you know, is kind of a departure, uh, from the, the earlier, earlier chapters, um, but I think it it helps to tell sort of the whole story because you know here you you literally see expressions of sentiment being censored. Um, in they have these like long lists of records of letters from these uh, war internment camps in South Asia, um, and the things that like get censored out, like it you know like aren't allowed through us are specifically sort of like expressions of emotion, um, uh, negative emotion, like negative sentiments against the British um, complaints. And the ones that, you know, like get a, a check that like are, are recorded as positive are the ones talking about how well the British treat them, etc. And then you you kind of see how like the, the memoirs that these individuals write afterwards uh, continue this trend of sort of, I say they sort of inhabit more a traveler, like traveler mentality rather than a, a, a sufferer, like a war, a war prisoner mentality. Um, but then later, uh, the uh, records, uh, the, the, the memoirs written sort of in the 1930s and 40s, which are part as part of this big moment of sort of Afrikaner nationalist consolidation, you see all of these like repressed sentiments for the land sort of like being uh, resurrected and deployed to to help strengthen this this claim of like Boer War suffering and Afrikaner like righteous claims to the land, right? So it becomes sort of deployed in this very sort of nationalist and like racial manner, um, which then leads us into the final chapter, um, where we see how these kind of sort of sentimental claims to the land, which are uh, at the heart of like apartheid ideology, um, like these kind of claims are used to, again, to against um, the sort of descendants of indentured laborers and the enslaved um, who are seen as like are described in these apartheid records as like being foreign, right? Like as not having a right to belong in South Africa. Um, so yeah, sort of, a uh, and then, you know, like that same chapter, I look at how in order to sort of counteract these, uh, 
these kind of claims of not belonging, of being perpetual outsiders, of being alien. Um, uh, you see uh, uh, South Asian would-be settlers in South Africa writing what I call sort of like settler narratives, right, where they use tropes that we are familiar with from, from, from settler novels um, to try and stake a kind of sentimental claim to the land. Um, but it, you know, like this is like, these are these odd kind of texts where, uh, these individuals can't really like fully like make that sentimental claim because like language of outsiderness, um, of the indenture contract of that sort of precarity that keeps on intruding on the narratives. I'm curious now thinking about, um, the fictional and non-fictional and the five chapters, and how do we relate that to the question of intentionality? Um, so how did you navigate that question, I guess, uh, in, in reading uh, between these different genres? Um, yeah, uh, I guess so questions of intentionality in sort of reading autobiography versus fiction. Um, you know, I kind of... It's a tough question. <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, when I read the uh, uh, sort of, I, I, I don't actually spend that much time on fiction and I'm, I'm sort of hoping to rectify that with my next project. Um, but I, you know, I kind of look for similar patterns because even in an autobiography and I, I kind of read um, Gandhi's autobiography, for example, next to a novel um, by a South African Indian, um, Ansoya R. Singh. You know, I, I kind of think of, of Gandhi as, as much sort of, you know, like fictionalizing his life, like creating a story of his life um, as um, Singh is in creating this like entirely fictional um, Indian family in South Africa. So, you know, I, I kind of treat autobiography as also just even if it's a representation of the self, it's still a representation, especially when it comes to thinking of questions of, of sort of emotions, right? And how like the, the sort of genre that one is, uh, is, is working with, right? Like, so even like the, the sort of pressures of like autobiography as a genre forces you to deploy certain kind of sentiments and tropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, we move to the Coda No Human Footprints. Uh, here we move from the imperial Indian Ocean to the present. Uh, what do you uh, mean by No Human Footprints and what would you like to convey uh, through this Coda? Yeah, I think the, the Coda was just, yeah, so, as you say, sort of trying to bring it up to the present moment. And I look at the, the Chagos Archipelago, which is sort of like, you know, this like lost trace of empire. Uh, empire still hasn't set, uh, the sun still hasn't set on the British Empire there. Like you still have the, the Indian, it's called the Indian Ocean, uh, British Indian Ocean Territory. Um, as the sort of contemporary scene of, of forced displacement, um, as the sort of Chagossians have been, uh, who are uh, largely the descendants of indentured laborers and, and enslaved persons, right? And they've been sort of displaced and forced uh, to, to move to Mauritius and elsewhere. Um, and I'm looking at the kind of rhetoric that the, uh, the British... Um, 
uh, like foreign services is still using to justify this. And there is these fascinating records where which refer to the the archipelago as in sort of uh, Robinson Crusoe's island, right? They use this language of like no human frit- footprint shall be found here. Um, uh, and uh, so just kind of thinking about how like the legacies of the way that you know, islands, um, imperial islands were imagined in fiction, like how that still influences sort of legal discourse and uh, like realities of life today. So just to sort of, you know, stress that, you know, this is not just a sort of story of history, but this is very much continuing today, the way that like sentiment um, and this kind of depiction of sentiment is is used um, even today to 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 render certain people silent. Indeed. So, who would you hope will read this book, and what sort of impact would you like it to have? Oh, um, yeah. That's a great question. I hope anyone reads it. <laughs> I think I was telling you earlier, like one writes one writes a book and it sort of goes out in the world, and it just I it just it's hard to imagine anyone actually reading it. So thank you so much for your careful careful reading of it. It's been great talking to you about this. Um, I hope that uh, it is useful to both historians and literary theorists. Um, uh, people who are interested in the Indian Ocean, but also I think you know, just as a contrast to the the, the Black Atlantic and the kind of work that's so much work uh, that has been done on the Black Atlantic. I think this should hopefully also be of interest uh, to to scholars of slavery more broadly in other parts of the world. Um, and yeah, I I hope that uh, also that. It engages with this ongoing question of how do we how do we work with these imperial archives, right? Not just as historians, but in this case as a, as a literary theorist, like how can we sort of read read these very like violent archives, and you know what can we do with the records that we find there? And so I hope that would be sort of a broader interest to to other people who are engaging with imperial archives, other kinds of archives, um, just about sort of different kinds of questions that one can ask of those 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 documents. Right. And I would like to uh, refer our listeners to another podcast uh, with Professor Ronit Ricci uh, about her book, Displacement, uh, Banishment and Belonging, uh, which, which would be really a good pair, I think, with this book on any syllabus. Uh, well, thank you so much. We've taken a lot of your time and we move now to our final traditional question, which is uh, what are you working on now or hope to work on? Can you tell us uh, about your current and future projects? Oh, thank you. Yeah, as I said, I'm trying to sort of address my lack of fiction in the earlier book. Uh, while I was um, working on these documents and working in these archives, um, I noticed that there was, you know, a lot of uh, a number of sort of like contemporary uh, fiction writers were also sort of turning to the the same archives of displacement and subaltern speech uh, that I was turning to um, in order to write sort of fictional works, and so I kind of became fascinated with uh, with these uh, these sort of very contemporary like post two thousand um, novels that are 
also really interested in depicting like subaltern figures uh, in movement. Um, so sort of transnational subaltern figures. So I'm sort of tentatively working on something I call like the Global South novel, um, arguing that this is uh, sort of a new or emerging form of, of historical fiction um, that engages sort of seriously with archives um, to uh, focus on these sort of subaltern figures uh, who become the protagonists and that have these kind of trans- uh, transnational, rich transnational journeys. Um, so, uh, I mean, everyone on here would know Amitav Ghosh's Sea of Poppies, and I kind of think of that as the the oral text um, in this in this sort of canon. But it's sort of a return to like you know realist depictions of history um, and. Uh, uh, that yeah, that that focus on um, on displacement, but from from below. That sounds fascinating, and I look forward to having you again on the podcast. Great, yeah, that would be. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for again for having me. Sure, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the Brinny South displacement and sentiment in the Indian Ocean world published by Duke University Press in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed El-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.